248, part two of a Fitzgerald surprise. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 248, End of Surprise. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. Also, Cool for Cats, the new novel by Andrew C. Ordover. You can get it at amazon.com or find out more from the link in the show notes. And you can find out all about the various ways to listen to Craftlit by visiting craftlit.com and looking at the links in the sidebar for information on apps and Stitcher Radio and all that good goodness. Well, I am alive, but barely. You can probably tell from the sound of my voice. Once again, I'll be putting this episode up on both the Craftlit and Just the Books feed as is, I hope are just the books listeners will bear with me. I, I just don't have the energy to even attempt to re-edit. My teenage cousin came and spent a week with us for spring break, which means I had three children in the house. Because seriously, an 18-year-old, that's a child. I'm recovering Though you can't tell. I am sitting here at the computer with my warm cup of British co-op tea. Thank you, Karen. And that is helping. So perhaps during the course of recording, my voice will improve a little bit. I'm not sick. I'm just wiped. I think I got two hours of sleep. Taxes, that haven't. That just hasn't helped at all. But, um, but it's kind of an opportune moment to be listening to a book like... A diamond as large as the reds, or a short story, a novella. It's you know it, it comes classified in many different ways because it is longer than a short story and shorter than a novel, and it's kind of short for a novella, but it's really long for a short story. So nobody really knows what to call it. I'll tell you what Fitzgerald called it though. He called it just a lot of fun for him. He wrote the story for himself. And you can kind of tell because his wicked sense of humor pops up in ways that you really don't see in his larger novels. And you you saw it a little bit in Bernice Bob's her hair, certainly at the end, the twist at the end. But this, this Fitzgerald, this is unique as far as my reading of Fitzgerald goes, which is not extensive, but it's big enough, I guess. So I do have a couple of little announcements for you, uh, some that I'll repeat next week when we start, or not next week, two weeks from now when we start Gulliver's Travels, um, because as always, when when a new novel starts, we get a, a new spike in listeners who who hear about it and, uh, and, and start listening then. So I like to save some of the, the bigger announcements for them. But I did want to let you know a couple of things. One, the little Twitter uh, hashtag experiment worked, which means I actually managed to get the 
code to work, which I'm very happy about. And I have selected a winner for uh, winning a little, what would Madame Defarge knit, wine red wristband. And that would be Lisa Mendel. She is at EFBQ. So Lisa, I will be getting in touch with you and I will get you your wristband. So congratulations for that. I also wanted to let you know what some of the favorite moments were out of the first book. If you didn't follow the hashtag fave Fitzgerald, um, it's worth going and looking. There were, you know, this is a, like I said, and it's experiment, but uh, the reactions were all different, which is what I loved. Uh, love the image of sailing to Russia in a Chinese junk. Love the crystalline jacuzzi fish tank. If it were current, it would be steampunk, which is so true. That that scene where John goes into the bathtub and there's the really kind of wacky description of the whole bath and bathtub. Um, uh, Jennifer said that she must admit that her fave Fitzgerald part was the description of flaws, including a glass eye. Uh, Ellen was the pink bubbles, the way that the bathtub worked. Catherine Popes was the, the line, I never smoke or drink or read anything except poetry. Kiss Me is just, she is an interesting, an interesting satiric character. I don't think Fitzgerald was writing her for veracity as much as just making fun of a type. And uh, Reeds and Strings wrote that her favorite moment was literally rolling out of bed straight into the bath, which on days like this, I cannot agree more. <laughs> I would love to do that. So that worked. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching those pop up. And so I'm going to do it again for two things. One is for the second half of this story. And again, on the craftlet.com show notes, there's a link. So you don't have to type anything into Twitter. You just click on the link and it takes you to your Twitter page. And then you start typing your comment and it will put all of the hashtags in the right place and all that. Um, the second hashtag experiment I wanted to try was let me know what you thought about the movie The Hunger Games. There are those who read the book and saw the movie and those who have only seen the movie and I am at least seeing a decided split between reactions from both of those groups. So again, there's a little uh, uh, Twitter link. Click on the hashtag Hunger Games movie at craftlit.com or at www.just-the-books.com. You thought I was going to forget again. No, this time I remembered. And at either of those two places, you'll be able to access those links to the hashtags and, uh, and send up a tweet about what you think. And then on the Craftlet and on the Just the Books web pages, those hashtags will appear in the sidebar in the, uh, in the Twitter feed, which is kind of cool. I like that. And of course, you know, the Hunger Games, near and dear to me because I designed socks for Katniss. And actually... I say I designed them for Katniss, but really I designed them for myself. I go through the bottom of my socks at a frightening rate. I must walk heavily or something or just not knit tight enough. Although I tend to knit on zeros anyway. Don't want to spend too much time on the knitting conversation. Either way, the socks I made are socks for people who tend to go through the heel and the instep. These suckers are Kevlar. 
and I am really proud of them. And mine are really comfortable. The fitted arch on my my foot, the fitted arch just makes such a difference. I mean, socks, hand-knit socks feel good anyway, but hand-knit socks with a fitted arch are really awesome. Last of the little newsy bits for you, what else would Madame Defarge knit? That's Defarge part deux. This time in color is now in pre-orders. We have 25 plus patterns, uh, weaving pattern, uh, amazing knitting patterns, some sweaters you will not believe, a devilishly cute layout from the good women at mightydistractable.com, the name of which still makes my sons crack up. They are now walking around, by the way, saying, ooh, shiny, whenever they see something they like. So I feel like the good people won on that, on that issue. So Defarge is in pre-orders. There's a link from the show notes at both websites. And two more cooperative press announcements that I'm very excited about and very proud to be involved in. The first is a sock and mitt club. This is cooperative press designers, including yours truly, who are cooking up uh, specially dyed yarns to go along with specially planned sock and mitten patterns. Right? I know, because not everybody likes socks. I do, I know, I'm biased, but there is a really large mitt and mitten and wrist warmer contingent in the world. And I support you, especially for my friend uh, Sam with fibromyalgia. I really support the mitts. And, uh, and so I'm very excited about that. And there are links about that on the show notes. And then Cooperative Press is also releasing a magazine. This is actually going to be not just patterns. Patterns will be there, but it will be writing, interesting, informed writing, because what's Cooperative Press? It's a publishing company. And so who is in there? Writers. And it's, it just warms the cockles of my heart. <laughs> Should I put a link to what a cockle is? I don't know. But I'm, I'm just so excited. So many good and exciting things are happening. I am just so grateful and so happy with how much wonderfulness there is in the world right now. Not the least of which is Gulliver's Travels, which I am prepping for and which you are going to love. Aaron Ziegler has been working his magic with his voice, making Jonathan Swift come to life for you. You will be stupefied at how modern this book sounds. Oh, I'm just so excited. I can't wait. And evidently the zeitgeist can't wait either because I got an email from Jill saying, have you seen the new ad? It's got Gulliver in it. And sure enough, it's, I think it's an Acura ad. I, I posted a link to the, <laughs> to the video on the show notes. It's Gulliver. It's Gulliver. It's a series of Gulliver ads. Just don't forget you heard me announce it here first. <laughs> the zeitgeist has begun. Let us enjoy the zeitgeist. All right, well, I have to get cooking because I am preparing for our What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit photo shoot coming up this weekend. And as you might imagine, there is a ton to do before I can get on the plane with all of the knitted goodies and, uh, and get up there. 
first, Fitzgerald. His his stories are definitely of a time. There is no question. The language he uses is a little antiquated. Uh, certainly, I mean, his, his terminology when referring to uh, people of different races and ethnicities is antiquated and always makes me uncomfortable when I hear it. However, as with most great writers, they, they do, in as much as possible, they do manage to transcend their time. And I think one of the things that is so important to recognize with this story in particular, and I, I'm going to link back to Gatsby in a minute. So if you haven't read Gatsby, it's not a spoiler. It's just a passing comment. One of the things that I think is important to notice here is that when Fitzgerald is talking about uh, the Washington family's slaves, and you'll hear more about them today, but when, he, when he's talking about the slaves, you are supposed to be horrified. In fact, the fact that the only people you meet from the moment that, uh, that John and Percy leave Fish and move into the, the Washington estate, the only people you meet on that entire journey are the Washington's slaves. We are supposed to be alerted to the fact that something is odd, especially the fact that they're in Montana and they're still speaking some kind of Southern Patois. Something is wrong and it's supposed to bug us and it will continue to bug us as the story moves along. And that's the way he wanted it to be. And so I, it's, it's always interesting to, to me to watch how I respond myself to things like this, to, to language that's out of date or the way people talk about women, you know, even, even some of the jokes in Flatland and, and things like that, partly because it, it makes me kind of prick up my ears and pay more attention to why the writer is saying what they're saying. And in this case, Fitzgerald is definitely coming down on the, the side of, of we who are horrified by the Washington family. And I think that that parallels really nicely with uh, a couple of moments in The Great Gatsby, uh, where Tom and Daisy are appalling, which is not news, but also uh, unlike so many other books that I've read that are supposed to be of a time or, or of a place, one of the things that Fitzgerald did in The Great Gatsby that I thought was so interesting was he, he let you know at, at least at least in these in in these flashes these moments that uh, that flew by in a car that there was a whole other world that was happening and one of the worlds that he points out very specifically is the Harlem Renaissance in the Great Gatsby there are two instances i can think of and there's probably more that i can't remember uh, where the characters in The Great Gatsby come across, see, or interact with um, very well-to-do uh, African-American men and women dressed in furs, the whole nine yards, um, because the jazz age is there and it's happening. And while some of the main scenes in The Great Gatsby take place at the, the Plaza Hotel, on Central Park South, um, 
that that whole world of the Harlem Renaissance is very present in The Great Gatsby. And and it's it's just one of those things that Fitzgerald, it's like it's like he's a chronicler of her his time in some ways, much the same way that Zora Neale Hurston was a chronicler of her time and place in Their Eyes Were Watching God, which if you have not read it, you must. Because Fitzgerald is a poet, sure. Everybody knows that. Zora Neale Hurston. Oh my gosh, the opening paragraph of Their Eyes Are Watching God is so beautiful. Ships at a distance. Oh, just go read it. It's fabulous. Anyway, okay, back to our story. Now, you may have noticed that, that John, the, uh, the main character, the character who we follow into the Washington family's estate, he's kind of a, he's kind of a blank slate. He's, he's almost like nobody you know, he, he kind of, he's only attracted to wealth and he's only interested in, uh, or, or only appreciative of wealth and uh, things that cost a lot of money. And it doesn't seem to occur to him that if he's never heard of the enormous wealth of the Washington family, that that might indicate something's kind of weird. He will kick in. But you, I think you will still be uh, a little surprised at his non-reaction reactions. And I think Fitzgerald did this on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, I think he is trying to satirize some of the people that he went to school with who were, uh, evidently, he thought they were kind of vapid and clueless and stupid and rich, but dumb. And... uh and, you know, we still see people making jokes like this. So that hasn't changed a whole lot. But I also think he's, he's kind of trying to get John Unger to be an everyman in some sense. Um, just some kind of generic person who we can, we can follow as he goes through the, the steps of, of this story. And, um, and of course, Percy is just kind of a horrible snob. And it's... Uh, it's interesting. I've always wondered with people like Fitzgerald who can see so much more than the normal mortal, how did he survive going, going to school with people if this is what he really thought they were like? Maybe that's why he drank. I don't know. I don't know because he clearly wound up hanging out with a lot of people that he wound up saying, tangentially anyway, not such nice things about. And I know I keep going back to Movable Feast and Hemingway, but, uh, but if you haven't listened to Movable Feast on Audible, you really probably should. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to see Hemingway's take on Fitzgerald. Hemingway's a little older, and you can tell that he's a little older. But you also see how these two guys who really didn't have a lot when they were growing up Hemingway even less than than Fitzgerald how they there was something about them that they they gravitated towards towards each other even though they weren't necessarily great friends they didn't have a lot in common um, but it's fascinating to watch the people who they hang out with because of course some of them are poverty-stricken writers and artists but some of them are also extraordinarily wealthy people and Watching them move within that world is 
it's really kind of fascinating. And Hemingway, he comes across to me, just me, as so smug in a lot of his uh, writing. And it's that, it's the restraint. I know that what I'm getting as arrogance and kind of smugness is, is the journalistic restraint in his writing that he's pulling it down to a essential words and I, I get that but it still comes across that way to me um it's not like that in movable feast he's just writing for himself and while the writing is lovely um it's a lot more human i think and so his his picture of fitzgerald is also human in its flaw flaws and uh and i appreciated that it's interesting it makes them both more more human to me and more real instead of these black and white photographs from a, a very bygone era. Now, in today's uh, second half, the end of this particular short story, you are going to see Braddock Washington in his element. And I, you know, as I was, as I was listening to this second half again and again, I thought Fitzgerald really kind of eases you in to the satire uh, in the in the first half, and then it is like full bore satire in the second half. It's it's not laugh out loud. I don't think it's laugh out loud. It might be smirk, <laughs> visibly smirk or smirk out loud uh, satire in the second half. But it it did occur to me that if you are not listening to these two back to back these two episodes, you actually might want to go back and listen to the first one before, right before you, you move into this one. And the actual audiobook starts in the previous episode, in episode 248, at about 17 minutes and 35 five seconds or so so if you want to go back and just listen to that and then move into this at about 22 minutes 23 minutes um that might work well for you but yeah uh today will surprise you <laughs> Fitzgerald does a good job and I will uh, I will catch you on the flip side don't forget as you listen or after you listen Please feel free to tweet your favorite Fitzgerald moment uh, using that hashtag. And you can get that from craftlet.com or from www.just-the-books.com. Both will have the same links in the show notes. So here we go with Shayla Norton, who has very generously recorded for us Scott F. Scott Fitzgerald's story, A Diamond as Big as the Ritz. The Diamond as Big as the Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald Read for Craftlet by Shayla Norton Part 6 John stood facing Mr. Braddock Washington in the full sunlight. The elder man was about forty with a proud vacuous face, intelligent eyes, and a robust figure. In the mornings he smelled of horses. The best horses. He carried a plain walking stick of grey birch with a single large opal for a grip. He and Percy were showing John around. The slaves' quarters are there. His walking stick indicated a cloister of marble on their left that ran in graceful gothic along the side of the mountain. 
In my youth, I was distracted for a while from the business of life by a period of absurd idealism. During that time, they lived in luxury. For instance, I equipped every one of their rooms with a tile bath. I suppose, ventured John with an ingratiating laugh, that they used the bathtubs to keep coal in. Mr. Schlitzer Murphy told me that once he... The opinions of Mr. Schlitzer Murphy are of little importance, I should imagine, interrupted Braddock Washington coldly. My slaves did not keep coal in their bathtubs. They had orders to bathe every day, and they did. If they hadn't, I might have ordered a sulfuric acid shampoo. I discontinued the baths for quite another reason. Several of them caught cold and died. Water is not good for certain races, except as a beverage. John laughed, then decided to nod his head in sober agreement. Braddock Washington made him uncomfortable. All these Negroes are descendants of the ones my father brought north with him. There are about 250 now. You notice that they've lived so long apart from the world that their original dialect has become an almost indistinguishable patois. We bring a few of them up to speak English. My secretary and two or three of the house servants. This is the golf course, he continued as they strolled along the velvet winter grass. It's all agreed, you see. No fairway, no rough, no hazards. He smiled pleasantly at John. Many men in the cage, father, asked Percy suddenly. Braddock Washington stumbled and let forth an involuntary curse. One less than there should be, he ejaculated darkly, then added after a moment, We've had difficulties. Mother was telling me, exclaimed Percy, that Italian teacher. A ghastly error said Braddock Washington angrily. But of course there's a good chance that we may have caught him. Perhaps he fell somewhere in the woods or stumbled over a cliff. And then there's always the probability that if he did get away, his story wouldn't be believed. Nevertheless, I've had two dozen men looking for him in different towns around here. And no luck. Some. Fourteen of them reported to my agent that they'd each kill the man answering to that description. But of course it was probably only the reward they were after. He broke off. They had come to a large cavity in the earth about the circumference of a merry-go-round and covered by a strong iron grating. Braddock Washington beckoned to John and pointed his cane down through the grating. John stepped to the edge and gazed. Immediately his ears were assailed by a wild clamor from below. Come on down to hell! Hello, kiddo. How's the air up there? Hey, throw us a rope! Got an old donut, buddy, or a couple of second-hand sandwiches? Say, fella, if you push down that guy you're with, we'll show you a quick disappearance scene. Paste one for me, will ya? It was too dark to see clearly into the pit below, but John could tell from the coarse optimism and rugged vitality of the remarks and voices that they proceeded from middle-class Americans of the more spirited type. Then Mr. Washington put out his cane and touched a button in the grass, and the scene below sprang into light. These are some of the adventurous mariners who had the misfortune to discover El Dorado, he remarked. Below them there had appeared a large hollow in the earth, shaped like the interior of a bowl. The sides were steep and apparently of polished glass, and on its slightly concave surface stood about two dozen men clad in the half-costume, half-uniform of aviators. Their upturned faces lit with wrath, with malice, with despair, with cynical humor, were covered by long growths of beard. But with the exception of a few who had pined perceptibly away, they seemed to be a well-fed, healthy lot. 
Braddock Washington drew up a garden chair to the edge of the pit and sat down. Well, how are you, boys? he inquired genially. A chorus of execration in which all joined, except a few too dispirited to cry out, rose up into the sunny air. But Braddock Washington heard it with unruffled composure. When its last echo had died away, he spoke again. Have you thought up a way out of your difficulty? From here and there among them, a remark floated up. We decided to stay here for love. Bring us up there and we'll find us a way. Braddock Washington waited until they were quiet again. Then he said, I've told you the situation. I don't want you here. I wish to heaven I'd never seen you. Your own curiosity got you here, and any time you can think of a way out which protects me and my interests, I'll be glad to consider it. But so long as you confine your efforts to digging tunnels, yes, I know about the new one you've started, you won't get very far. This isn't as hard as you make it out with all your howling for the loved ones at home. If you were the type who worried much about the loved ones at home, you'd never have taken up aviation. A tall man moved apart from the others and held up his hand to call his captor's attention to what he was about to say. Let me ask you a few questions, he cried. You pretend to be a fair-minded man. How absurd! How could a man of my position be fair-minded towards you? You might as well speak of a Spaniard being fair-minded towards a piece of steak. At this harsh observation, the faces of the two dozen steaks fell, but the tall man continued. All right, he cried. We've argued this out before. You're not a humanitarian and you're not fair-minded, but you're human. At least you say you are, and you ought to be able to put yourself in our place for long enough to think how... 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 How what? demanded Washington coldly. How unnecessary. Not to me. Well, how cruel. We've covered that. Cruelty doesn't exist where self-preservation is involved. You've been soldiers. You know that. Try another. Well, then, how stupid. There, admitted Washington. I grant you that. But try to think of an alternative. I've offered to have all or any of you painlessly executed if you wish. I've offered to have your wives, sweethearts, children, and mothers kidnapped and brought out here. I'll enlarge your place down there and feed and clothe you the rest of your lives. If there was some way of producing permanent amnesia, I'd have you all operated on and released immediately, somewhere outside of my preserves. But that's as far as my ideas go. How about trusting us not to peach on you? cried someone. You don't proffer that suggestion seriously, said Washington with an expression of scorn. I did take out one man to teach my daughter Italian. Last week he got away. A wild yell of jubilation went up suddenly from two dozen throats, and a pandemonium of joy ensued. The prisoners clogged, danced, and cheered and yodeled, and wrestled with one another in a sudden uprush of animal spirits. They even ran up the glass sides of the bowl as far as they could, and slid back to the bottom upon the natural cushions of their bodies. The tall man started a song in which they all joined. Oh, we'll hang the Kaiser on a sour apple tree. Braddock Washington sat in inscrutable silence until the song was over. You see, he remarked when he could gain a modicum of attention, I bear you no ill will. I like to see you enjoying yourselves. That's why I didn't tell you the whole story at once. The man, Critch Ticciello, was shot by some of my agents in fourteen different places. Not guessing that the places referred to were cities, the tumult of rejoicing subsided immediately. Nevertheless, 
cried Washington, and with a touch of anger, he tried to run away. Do you expect me to take chances with any of you after an experience like that? Again, a series of ejaculations went up. Sure! Would your daughter like to learn Chinese? Hey, I can speak Italian. My mother was a wop. Maybe she'd like to learn to speak New York. If she's a little one with the blue eyes, I can teach her a lot of things better than Italian. I know some Irish songs and I could hammer brass once. Mr. Washington reached forward suddenly with his cane and pushed the button in the grass so that the picture below went out instantly, and there remained only that great dark mouth covered dismally with the black teeth of the grating. Hey! cried a single voice from below. You ain't gonna go away without giving us your blessing! But Mr. Washington, followed by the two boys, was already strolling on towards the ninth hole of the golf course, as though the pit and its contents were no more than a hazard over which his facile iron had triumphed with ease. Part 7 July, under the lee of the Diamond Mountain, was a month of blanket nights and of warm, glowing days. John and Kismine were in love. He did not know that the little gold football, inscribed with the legend Prodeo et Patria et Saint Mida, which he had given her, rested on a platinum chain next to her bosom. But it did. And she, for her part, was not aware that a large sapphire which had dropped one day from her simple coiffure was stowed away tenderly in John's jewel box. Late one afternoon, when the ruby and ermine music room was quiet, they spent an hour there together. He held her hand, and she gave him such a look that he whispered her name aloud. She bent towards him, then hesitated. Did you say Kismine? she asked softly, or... She had wanted, to be sure. She thought she might have misunderstood. Neither of them had ever kissed before, but in the course of an hour it seemed to make little difference. The afternoon drifted away. That night, when a last breath of music drifted down from the highest tower, they each lay awake, happily dreaming over the separate minutes of the day. They decided to be married as soon as possible. Part 8 Every day Mr. Washington and the two young men went hunting or fishing in the deep forest or played golf around the somnolent course, games which John diplomatically allowed his host to win, or swam in the mountain coolness of the lake. John found Mr. Washington a somewhat exacting personality, utterly uninterested in any ideas or opinions except his own. Mrs. Washington was aloof and reserved at all times. She was apparently indifferent to her two daughters and entirely absorbed in her son Percy, with whom she held interminable conversations in rapid Spanish at dinner. Jasmine, the older daughter, resembled Kismine in appearance, except that she was somewhat bow-legged and terminated in large hands and feet, but was utterly unlike her in temperament. Her favorite books had to do with poorer girls who kept house for widowed fathers. John learned from Kismine that Jasmine had never recovered from the shock and disappointment caused her by the termination of the World War, just as she was about to start for Europe as a canteen expert. She had even pined away for a time, and Braddock Washington had taken steps to promote a new war in the Balkans. But she had seen a photograph of some wounded Serbian soldiers and lost interest in the whole proceedings. But Percy and Kismine seemed to have inherited the arrogant attitude in all its harsh magnificence from their father. A chaste and consistent selfishness ran like a pattern through their every idea. John was enchanted by the wonders of the chateau and the valley. 
Braddock Washington, so Percy told him, had caused to be kidnapped a landscape gardener, an architect, a designer of stage settings, and a French decadent poet left over from the last century. He had put his entire force of Negroes at their disposal, guaranteed to supply them with any materials that the world could offer, and left them to work out some ideas of their own. But one by one they had shown their uselessness. The decadent poet had at once begun bewailing his separation from the boulevards in spring. He made some vague remarks about spices, apes, and ivories, but said nothing that was of any practical value. The stage designer on his part wanted to make the whole valley a series of tricks and sensational effects, a state of things that the Washingtons would soon have grown tired of. And as for the architect and the landscape gardener, they thought only in terms of convention. They must make this like this, and that like that. But they had, at least, solved the problems of what was to be done with them. They all went mad early one morning after spending the night in a single room trying to agree upon the location of a fountain, and were now confined comfortably in an insane asylum at Westport, Connecticut. But, inquired John curiously, who did plan all your wonderful reception rooms and halls and approaches and bathrooms? Well, answered Percy, I blush to tell you, but it was a moving picture fella. He was the only man we found who was used to playing with an unlimited amount of money, though he did tuck his napkin into his collar and couldn't read or write. As August drew to a close, John began to regret that he must soon go back to school. He and Kismine had decided to elope the following June. It would be nicer to be married here, Kismine confessed, but of course I could never get father's permission to marry you at all. Next to that, I'd rather elope. It's terrible for wealthy people to be married in America at present. They always have to send out bulletins to the press saying they're going to be married in remnants, when what they mean is just a peck of old second-hand pearls and some used lace worn once by the Empress Eugenie. I know, agreed John fervently. When I was visiting the Slitzer Murphys, the eldest daughter, Gwendolyn, married a man whose father owns half of West Virginia. She wrote home saying what a tough struggle it was carrying on on his salary as a bank clerk. And then she ended up by saying, Thank God I have four good maids anyhow, and that helps a little. It's absurd, commented Kismine. Think of the millions and millions of people in the world, laborers and all, who get along with only two maids. One afternoon late in August, a chance remark of Kismine's changed the face of the entire situation and threw John into a state of terror. They were in their favorite grove, and between kisses, John was indulging in some romantic forebodings, which he fancied added poignancy to their relations. Sometimes I think we'll never marry, he said sadly. You're too wealthy, too magnificent. No one as rich as you are can be like other girls. I should marry the daughter of some well-to-do wholesale hardware man from Omaha or Sioux City, and be content with her half-million. I knew the daughter of a wholesale hardware man once, remarked Kismine. I don't think you would have been contented with her. She was a friend of my sister's. She visited here. Oh, then you've had other guests? exclaimed John in surprise. Kismine seemed to regret her words. Oh, yes, she said hurriedly. We've had a few. But aren't you... Wasn't your father afraid they'd talk outside? Oh, to some extent, to some extent. She answered, let's talk about something pleasanter. But John's curiosity was aroused. Something pleasanter? He demanded. What's unpleasant about that? Weren't they nice girls? To his great surprise, Kismine began to weep. Yes, that's the 
the whole table. I grew quite attached to some of them. So did Jasmine, but she kept inviting them anyway. I couldn't understand it. A dark suspicion was born in John's heart. Do you mean they told, and your father had them removed? Worse than that, she muttered brokenly. Father took no chances, and Jasmine kept writing them to come, and they had such a good time. She was overcome by a paroxysm of grief. Stunned with the horror of this revelation, John sat there open-mouthed, feeling the nerves of his body twitter like so many sparrows perched upon his spinal column. Now I've told you, and I shouldn't have, she said, calming suddenly and drying her dark blue eyes. Do you mean to say that your father had them murdered before they left? She nodded. In August, usually, or early in September, it's only natural for us to get all the pleasure out of them that we can. How abominable! How... Why, I must be going crazy! Did you really admit that? I did, interrupted Kismine, shrugging her shoulders. We can't very well imprison them like those aviators, where they'd be a continual reproach to us every day. And it's always been made easier for Jasmine and me because Father had it done sooner than we expected, and that way we avoided any farewell scene. So you murdered them! Ugh! cried John. It was done very nicely. They were drugged while they were asleep, and their families were always told that they died of scarlet fever in Butte. But I fail to understand why you kept inviting them. I didn't, burst out Kismine. I never invited one. Jasmine did. They always had a very good time. She'd give them the nicest presents toward the last. I shall probably have visitors, too. I'll harden up to it. We can't let such an inevitable thing as death stand in the way of enjoying life while we have it. Think how lonesome it'd be out here if we never had anyone. Why, father and mother have sacrificed some of their best friends, just as we have. And so, cried John accusingly, so you were letting me make love to you and pretending to return it and talking about marriage all the time, knowing perfectly well that I'd never get out of here alive? No! she protested passionately. Not any more. I did it first. You were here. I couldn't help that. And I thought your last days might as well be pleasant for both of us. But then I fell in love with you and... And I'm honestly sorry you're going to... going to be put away, though I'd rather you be put away than ever kiss another girl. Oh, you would, would you? cried John ferociously. Much rather. Besides, I've always heard that a girl can have more fun with a man she knows she can never marry. Oh, why did I tell you? I've probably spoiled your whole good time now, and we were really enjoying things when you didn't know it. I knew it would make things sort of depressing for you. Oh, you did, did you? John's voice trembled with anger. I've heard about enough of this. If you haven't any more pride and decency to have an than to have an affair with a fellow that you know isn't much better than a corpse. I don't want to have anything more to do with you. You're not a corpse, she protested in horror. You're not a corpse. I won't have you saying that I kissed a corpse. I said nothing of the sort. You did? You said I kissed a corpse. I didn't. Their voices had risen, but upon a sudden interruption, they both subsided into immediate silence. 
Footsteps were coming along the path in their direction, and a moment later the rose bushes were parted, displaying Braddock Washington, whose intelligent eyes set in his good-looking, vacuous face were peering in at them. Who kissed a corpse? he demanded in obvious disapproval. Nobody, answered Kissming quickly. We were just joking. What are you doing here, anyhow? he demanded gruffly. Kissmeen, you ought to be... to be reading or playing golf with your sister. Go read. Go play golf. Don't let me find you here when I come back. Then he bowed at John and went up the path. See, said Kissmeen crossly when he was out of hearing. You've spoiled it all. We could never meet any more. He won't let me meet you. He'd have you poisoned if we thought we were in love. We're not. Not any more, cried John fiercely, so he can set his mind at rest upon that. Moreover, don't fool yourself that I'm going to stay around here. Inside of six hours, I'll be over those mountains if I have to gnaw a passage through them, and on my way east. They had both got to their feet, and at this remark, Kismine came close and put her arm through his. I'm going to. You must be crazy. Of course I'm going, she interrupted patiently. You most certainly are not, you. Very well she said quietly. We'll catch up with Father now and talk it over with him. Defeated, John mustered a sickly smile. Very well, dearest, he agreed with pale and unconvincing affection. We'll go together. His love for her returned and settled placidly on his heart. She was his. She would go with him to share his dangers. He put his arms about her and kissed her fervently. After all, she loved him. She had saved him, in fact. Discussing the matter, they walked slowly back towards the chateau. They decided that since Braddock Washington had seen them together, they had best depart the next night. Nevertheless, John's lips were unusually dry at dinner, and he nervously emptied a great spoonful of peacock soup into his left lung. He had to be carried into the turquoise and sable card room and pounded on the back by one of the underbutlers, which Percy considered a great joke. Part 9 Long after midnight, John's body gave a nervous jerk, and he sat suddenly upright, staring into the veils of somnolence that draped the room. Through the squares of blue darkness that were his open windows, he had heard a faint, faraway sound that died upon a bed of wind before identifying itself on his memory, clouded with uneasy dreams. But the sharp noise that had succeeded it was nearer, was just outside the room. The click of a turned knob, a footstep, a whisper. He could not tell. A hard lump gathered in the pit of his stomach, and his whole body ached in the moment that he strained agonizingly to hear. Then one of the veils seemed to dissolve, and he saw a vague figure standing by the door, a figure only faintly limbed and blocked in on the darkness, mingled so with the folds of the draperies as to seem distorted, like a reflection seen in a dirty pane of glass. With a sudden movement of fright or resolution, John pressed the button by his bedside, and the next moment he was sitting in the green sunken bath of the adjoining room, waked into alertness by the shock of the cold water which half filled it. He sprang out, and, his wet pajamas scattering a heavy trickle of water behind him, ran for the aquamarine door which he knew led out into the ivory landing of the second floor. The door opened noiselessly. A single crimson lamp burning in a great dome above, lit a magnificent sweep of the carved stairway with a poignant beauty. For a moment John hesitated, appalled by the silent splendor massed about him, 
seeming to envelope in its gigantic folds and contours the solitary drenched little figure shivering upon the ivory landing. Then simultaneously two things happened. The door of his own sitting-room swung open, precipitating three naked negroes into the hall, and as John swayed in wild terror towards the stairway, another door slid back in the wall on the other side of the corridor, and John saw Braddock Washington standing in the lighted lift, wearing a fur coat and a pair of riding boots which reached to his knees and displayed above the glow of his rose-colored pajamas. On the instant, the three Negroes, John had never seen any of them before, and it flashed through his mind that they must be the professional executioners, paused in their movement towards John and turned expectantly to the man in the lift, who burst out with an imperious command, Get in here, all three of you, quick as hell! Then, within the instant, the three Negroes darted into the cage, the oblong of light was blotted out as the lift door slid shut, and John was again alone in the hall. He slumped weakly down against an ivory stair. It was apparent that something portentous had occurred, something which for the moment at least had postponed his own petty disaster. What was it? Had the Negroes risen in revolt? Had the aviators forced aside the iron bars of the grating? Or had the man of fish stumbled blindly through the hills and gazed with bleak, joyless eyes upon the gaudy valley? John did not know. He heard a faint whirr of air as the lift whizzed up again, and then, a moment later, as it descended, it was probable that Percy was hurrying to his father's assistance, and it occurred to John that this was his opportunity to join Kismine and plan an immediate escape. He waited until the lift had been silent for several minutes, shivering a little with the night cool that whipped in through his wet pajamas. He returned to his room and dressed himself quickly. Then he mounted a long flight of stairs and turned down the corridor carpeted with Russian sable, which led to Kismine's suite. The door of her sitting-room was open, and the lamps were lighted. Kismine, in an angora kimono, stood near the door of the room in a listening attitude, and as John entered noiselessly, she turns towards him. "'Oh, it's you,' she whispered, crossing the room to him. "'Did you hear them?' "'I heard your father's slave in my—' "'No!' she interrupted excitedly. Aeroplanes. Aeroplanes? Perhaps that was the sound that woke me. There are at least a dozen. I saw one a few moments ago dead against the moon. The guard back by the cliff fired his rifle, and that's what roused father. We're going to open on them right away. Are they here on purpose? Yes. It's that Italian who got away. Simultaneously with her last word, a succession of sharp cracks tumbled in through the open window. Kismine uttered a little cry, took a penny with fumbling fingers from a box on her dresser, and ran to one of the electric lights. In an instant, the entire chateau was in darkness. She had blown out the fuse. "'Come on!' she cried to him. "'We'll go up to the roof garden and watch it from there.' Drawing a cape about her, she took his hand, and they found their way out the door. It was only a step to the tower lift, and as she pressed the button that shot them upward, he put his arms around her in the darkness and kissed her mouth. Romance had come to John Unger at last. A minute later they had stepped out upon the star-white platform. Above, under the misty moon, sliding in and out of the patches of cloud that eddied below it, floated a dozen dark-winged bodies in a constant circling course. From here and there in the valley flashes of fire leapt towards them, followed by sharp detonations. Kismine clapped her hands with pleasure— which a moment later turned to dismay as the aeroplanes, at some prearranged signal, began to release their bombs, and the whole of the valley became a panorama of deep, reverberant sound and lurid light. 
Before long, the aim of the attackers became concentrated upon the points where the anti-aircraft guns were situated, and one of them was almost immediately reduced to a giant cinder to lie smoldering in a park of rose bushes. Kiss mean, begged John. You'll be glad when I tell you that this attack came on the eve of my murder. If I hadn't heard that guard shoot off his gun back by the pass, I should now be stone dead. I can't hear you, cried Kiss mean, intent on the scene before her. You'll have to talk louder. I simply said, shouted John, that we'd better get out before they begin to shell the chateau. Suddenly, the whole portico of the Negro quarters cracked asunder. A geyser of flame shot up from under the colonnades, and great fragments of jagged marble were hurled as far as the borders of the lake. There go fifty thousand dollars worth of slaves, cried Kismine, at pre-war prices. So few Americans have any respect for property. John renewed his efforts to compel her to leave. The aim of the airplanes was becoming more precise minute by minute, and only two of the anti-aircraft guns were still retaliating. It was obvious that the garrison, encircled with fire, could not hold out much longer. Come on, cried John, pulling Kismine's arm. We've got to go. Do you realize that those aviators will kill you without question if they find you? She consented reluctantly. We'll have to wake Jasmine, she said as they hurried towards the lift. Then she added in a sort of childish delight, We'll be poor, won't we? Like people in books. And I'll be an orphan and utterly free. Free and poor. What fun! She stopped and raised her lips to him in a delighted kiss. It's impossible to be both together, said John grimly. People have found that out and I should choose to be free as preferable of the two. As an extra caution, you'd better lump the contents of your jewel box into your pockets. Ten minutes later, the two girls met John in the dark corridor, and they descended to the main floor of the chateau. Passing for the last time through the magnificence of the splendid halls, they stood for a moment out on the terrace, watching the burning negro quarters and the flaming embers of two planes which had fallen on the other side of the lake. A solitary gun was still keeping up a sturdy popping, and the attackers seemed timorous about descending lower, but sent their thunderous fireworks in a circle around it until any chance shot might annihilate its Ethiopian crew. John and the two sisters passed down the marble steps, turned sharply to the left, and began to ascend a narrow path that wound like a garter about the Diamond Mountain. Kismine knew a heavily wooded spot halfway up where they could lie concealed and yet be able to observe the wild night in the valley, finally to make an escape when it should be necessary, along a secret path that laid in a rocky gully. Part 10 It was three o'clock when they attained their destination. The obliging and phlegmatic Jasmine fell off to sleep immediately, leaning against the trunk of a large tree, while John and Kismine sat, his arm around her, and watched the desperate ebb and flow of the dying battle among the ruins of a vista that had been a garden spot that morning. Shortly after four o'clock, the last remaining gun gave out a clanging sound and went out of action in a swift tongue of red smoke. Though the moon was down, they saw that the flying bodies were circling closer to earth. When the planes had made certain that the beleaguered possessed no further resources, they would land and the dark and glittering rain of the Washingtons would be over. With the cessation of the firing, the valley grew quiet. The embers of the two airplanes glowed like the eyes of some monster crouching in the grass. The chateau stood dark and silent, 
beautiful without light as it had been beautiful in the sun, while the woody rattles of Nemesis filled the air above with a growing and receding complaint. Then John perceived that Kismine, like her sister, had fallen sound asleep. It was long after four when he became aware of footsteps along the path they had lately followed, and he waited in breathless silence until the persons to whom they belonged had passed the vantage point he occupied. There was a faint stir in the air now that was not of human origin, and the dew was cold. He knew that the dawn would break soon. John waited until the steps had gone a safe distance up the mountain and were inaudible. Then he followed. About halfway to the steep summit, the trees fell away, and a hard saddle of rock spread itself over the diamond beneath. Just before he reached this point, he slowed down his pace, warned by an animal sense that there was life just ahead of him. Coming to a high boulder, he lifted his head gradually above its edge. His curiosity was rewarded. This is what he saw. Braddock Washington was standing there motionless silhouetted against the gray sky without sound or sign of life. As the dawn came up out of the east, letting a cold green color to the earth, it brought the solitary figure into insignificant contrast with the new day. While John watched, his host remained for a few moments absorbed in some inscrutable contemplation. Then he signaled to the two negroes who crouched at his feet to lift the burden which lay between them. As they struggled upright, the first yellow beam of the sun struck through the innumerable prisms of an immense and exquisitely chiseled diamond, and a white radiance was kindled that glowed upon the air like a fragment of the morning star. The bearers staggered beneath its weight for a moment. Then the rippling muscles caught and hardened under the wet shine of the skins, and the three figures were once again motionless in their defiant impotency before the heavens. After a while, the white man lifted his head and slowly raised his arms in a gesture of attention, as one who would call a great crowd to hear. But there was no crowd, only the vast silence of the mountain and the sky, broken by faint bird voices down among the trees. The figure on the saddle of rock began to speak ponderously and with an inextinguishable pride. "'You out there!' he cried in a trembling voice. "'You! There!' He paused, his arms still uplifted, his head held attentively, as though he were expecting an answer. John strained his eyes to see whether there might be men coming down the mountain, but the mountain was bare of human life. There was only sky and a mocking flute of wind along the treetops. Could Washington be praying? For a moment John wondered. Then the illusion passed. There was something in the man's whole attitude antithetical to prayer. Oh, you above there! The voice was become strong and confident. This was no forlorn supplication. If anything, there was in it a quality of monstrous condescension. You there! Words, too quickly uttered to be understood, flowing one into the other. John listened breathlessly, catching a phrase here and there, while the voice broke off, resumed broke off again, now strong and argumentative, now colored with a slow, puzzled impatience. Then a conviction commenced to dawn on the single listener, and as realization crept over him, a spray of quick blood rushed through his arteries. Braddock Washington was offering a bribe to God. That was it. There was no doubt. The diamond in the arms of his slaves 
with some advance sample, a promise of more to follow. That, Don perceived after a time, was the thread running through his sentences. Prometheus enriched was calling to witness forgotten sacrifices, forgotten rituals, prayers obsolete before the birth of Christ. For a while his discourse took the form of reminding God of this gift or that which divinity had deigned to accept from men. Great churches if he would rescue cities from the plague, gifts of myrrh and gold, of human lives and beautiful women and captive armies, of children and queens, of beasts of the forest and field, sheep and goats, harvests and cities, whole conquered lands that had been offered up in lust or blood for his appeasal, buying a mead's worth of alleviation from the divine wrath. And now he, Braddock Washington, Emperor of Diamonds, King and Priest of the Age of Gold, Arbiter of Splendor and Luxury, would offer up a treasure such as princes before him had never dreamed of, offered up not in suppliance, but in pride. He would give to God, he continued, getting down to specifications, the greatest diamond in the world. This diamond would be cut with many more thousand facets than there were leaves on a tree, and yet the whole diamond would be shaped with the perfection of a stone no bigger than a fly. Many men would work upon it for many years. It would be set in a great dome of beaten gold, wonderfully carved and equipped with gates of opal and crusted sapphire. In the middle would be hollowed out a chapel presided over by an altar of iridescent, decomposing, ever-changing radium, which would burn out the eyes of any worshipper who lifted up his head from prayer. And on this altar there would be slain for the amusement of the divine benefactor any victim he should choose even though it should be the greatest and most powerful man alive. In return, he asked only a simple thing, a thing which for God would be absurdly easy, only that matters should be as they were yesterday, at this hour, and that they should so remain. So very simple. Let but the heavens open, swallowing these men in their aeroplanes, and then close again. Let him have his slaves once more restored to life and well. There was no one else with whom he ever needed to treat or bargain. He doubted only whether he had made his bribe big enough. God had his price, of course. God was made in man's image, so it had been said. He must have his price, and the price would be rare. No cathedral whose building consumed many years, no pyramid constructed by ten thousand workmen's, would be like this cathedral, this pyramid. He paused here. That was his proposition. Everything would be up to specifications, and there was nothing vulgar in his assertion that it would be cheap at the price. He implied that Providence could take it or leave it. As he approached the end, his sentences became broken, became short and uncertain, and his body seemed tense, seemed to strain to catch the slightest pressure or whisper of life in the spaces around him. His hair had turned gradually white as he talked, and now he lifted his head high to the heavens like a prophet of old, magnificently mad. Then as John stared in giddy fascination, it seemed to him that a curious phenomenon took place somewhere around him. It was as though the sky had darkened for an instant, as though there had been a sudden murmur and a gust of wind, a sound of faraway trumpets, a sighing like the rustle of a great silken robe, and for a time the whole of nature round about partook of this darkness. The bird song ceased, the trees were still, and far over the mountain there was a mutter of dull, menacing thunder.
that was all. The wind died along the tall grasses of the valley. The dawn and day resumed their place from time, and the risen sun sent out hot waves of yellow mist that made its path bright before it. The leaves laughed in the sun, and their laughter shook the trees until each bough was like a girl's school in fairyland. God had refused to accept the bribe. For another moment John watched the triumph of the day. Then turning, he saw a flutter of brown down by the lake. Then another flutter and another, like the dance of golden angels alighting from the clouds. The aeroplanes had come to earth. John slid off the boulder and ran down the side of the mountain to the clump of trees, where the two girls were awake and waiting for him. Kismine sprang to her feet, the jewels in her pockets jingling, a question on her parted lips. But instinct told John that there was no time left for words. They must get off the mountain without losing a moment. He seized a hand of each, and in silence they threaded the tree trunks washed with light now and with a rising mist. Behind them from the valley came no sound at all, except the complaint of the peacocks far away and the pleasant undertone of morning. When they had gone about a half a mile, they avoided the parkland and entered the narrow path that led over the next rise of ground. At the highest point of this they paused and turned around. Their eyes rested upon the mountainside they had just left, oppressed by some dark sense of tragic impendency. Clear against the sky, a broken, white-haired man was slowly descending the steep slope, followed by two gigantic and emotionless negroes, who carried a burden between them which still flashed and glittered in the sun. Halfway down, two other figures joined them. John could see that they were Mrs. Washington and her son, upon whose arm she leaned. The aviators had clambered from their machines to the sweeping lawn in front of the chateau, and with rifles in hand were starting up the Diamond Mountain in skirmishing formation. But the little group of five, which had formed farther up and was engrossing all the watchers' attention, had stopped upon a ledge of rock. The negroes stooped and pulled up what appeared to be a trapdoor in the side of the mountain. Into this they all disappeared, the white-haired man first, then his wife and son, finally the two negroes, the glittering tips of whose jeweled headdresses caught the sun for a moment before their trapdoor descended and engulfed them all. Kismine clutched John's arm. Oh, she cried wildly, where are they going? What are they going to do? It must be some underground way of escape. A little scream from the two girls interrupted his sentence. Don't you see? sobbed Kismine hysterically. The mountain is wired. Even as she spoke, John put up his hands to shield his sight. Before their eyes, the whole surface of the mountain had changed suddenly to a dazzling, burning yellow, which showed up through the jacket of turf as light shows up through a human hand. For a moment, the intolerable glow continued, and then, like an extinguished filament, it disappeared, revealing a black waste from which blue smoke arose slowly, carrying off with it what remained of vegetation and of human flesh. Of the aviators there was neither blood nor bone. They were consumed as completely as the five souls who had gone inside. Simultaneously, and with an immense concussion, the chateau literally threw itself into the air, bursting into flaming fragments as it rose, and then tumbling back upon itself in a smoking pile that lay projecting half into the water of the lake. There was no fire. What smoke there was drifted off mingling with the sunshine, and for a few minutes longer the powdery dust of marble drifted from the great featureless pile that had once been the house of jewels. There was no more sound, and the three people were alone in the valley. Part 11 
At sunset, John and his two companions reached the high cliff which had marked the boundaries of the Washington's dominion, and looking back found the valley tranquil and lovely in the dusk. They sat down to finish the food which Jasmine had brought with her in a basket. There, she said as she spread the tablecloth and put the sandwiches on a neat pile upon it. Don't they look tempting? I always think that food tastes better outdoors. With that remark, remarked Kismine, Jasmine enters the middle class. Now, said John eagerly, turn out your pockets and let's see what jewels you brought along. If you made a good selection, we three ought to live comfortably all the rest of our lives. Obediently, Kismine put her hand in her pocket and tossed two handfuls of glittering stones before him. Not so bad, cried John enthusiastically. They aren't very big, but... Hello. His expression changed as he held one of them up to the declining sun. Why, these aren't diamonds. There's something the matter. By golly, exclaimed Kismine with a startled look. What an idiot I am. Why, these are rhinestones, cried John. I know, she broke into a laugh. I opened the wrong drawer. They belong to the dress of a girl who visited Jasmine. I got her to give them to me in exchange for diamonds. I'd never seen anything but precious stones before. And this is what you brought? I'm afraid so. She fingered the brilliance wistfully. I think I like these better. I'm a little tired of diamonds. Very well, said John gloomily. We'll have to live in Hades, and you will grow old telling incredulous women that you got the wrong drawer. Unfortunately, your father's bank books were consumed with him. Well, what's the matter with Hades? If I come home with a wife at my age, my father is just as liable as not to cut me off with a hot coal, as they say down there. Jasmine spoke up. I love washing, she said quietly. I have always washed my own handkerchiefs. I'll take in laundry and support you both. Do they have washwomen in Hades? asked Kismine innocently. Of course, answered John. It's just like anywhere else. I thought, perhaps it was too hot to wear any clothes. John laughed. Just try it, he suggested. They'll run you out before you've half started. Will father be there? she asked. John turned to her in astonishment. Your father is dead, he replied somberly. Why should he go to Hades? You have it confused with another place that was abolished long ago. After supper, they folded up the tablecloth and spread their blankets for the night. What a dream it was, Kismine sighed, gazing up at the stars. How strange it seems to be here with one dress and a penniless fiancé. Under the stars, she repeated. I never noticed the stars before. I always thought of them as great big diamonds that belonged to someone. Now they frighten me. They make me feel it was all a dream, all my youth. It was a dream, said John quietly. Everybody's youth is a dream, a form of chemical madness. How pleasant, then, to be insane. So I'm told, said John gloomily. I don't know any longer. At any rate, let us love for a while. For a year or so, you and me. That's a form of divine drunkenness that we can all try. 
There are only diamonds in the whole world, diamonds and perhaps the shabby gift of disillusion. Well, I have that last, and I will make the usual nothing of it. He shivered. Turn up your coat collar, little girl. The night's full of chill, and you'll get pneumonia. His was a great sin who first invented consciousness. Let us lose it for a few hours. So wrapping himself in his blanket, he fell off to sleep. End of The Diamond As Big As The Ritz And even though it is a comedy and a satire, Fitzgerald cannot help himself. It's like Gatsby, and we beat on boats against the current. Uh, it's, it had to be hard to be young and able to see through people so clearly as, uh, as Fitzgerald was capable of doing. It couldn't have been easy on the psyche. But he, he makes some interesting, he raises some interesting questions about America. Is what he's saying the only way to be free is to be rich? Or the only way to be free is to be poor? Or is he raising the question because he doesn't know the answer either? He certainly seems to disprove of the pursuit of wealth at any cost. And, uh, and that would have been saying something in the 20s when, uh, you know, they moved out of the Gilded Age and, and the early days of the robber barons. And then you kind of wind up reenacting that all again in the, in the 20s, the kind of drunken frenzied wealth machine that, uh, that was post-war America. And, um, and wasn't that comment interesting that, uh, that the older, the older sister Jasmine had wanted to, to go and, and work during the war, but sadly the conflict ended before she could get there. You know, she's so sad that people stopped dying uh, before she could get there, which is kind of creepy. And it, of course, and it's supposed to be kind of creepy. The other thing I, I thought was interesting, uh, I, I mentioned it before last week, to, to pay attention to the way Fitzgerald describes the town of Fish uh, as being a place without religion. There are 12 disciples waiting, but there's no Messiah, there's no religion, there's no there, there. And um, it, it, again, with Gatsby, it kind of reminds me of the, the Valley of Ashes, that he, he seems to like to create these rather bleak, uh, human and humane-less worlds or uh, areas, backdrops against which he can throw up his story and his characters and his people and his point. But I also thought it was interesting that when he has uh, Washington throw his arms up to the heavens and try to bargain with God, not pray, he's not praying, bargain with God, that there's no answer. Because Fitzgerald could be saying, there is no God. Or he could be saying, God wants nothing to do with you, bozo. Or, or he could be saying, this is just not God's world, this pursuit of wealth at any cost. You know, it's, it's like Braddock Washington hadn't read the Bible, the meek shall inherit the earth, and it's harder for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle and all of that. Um, so, that, I thought, was 
particularly interesting. Fitzgerald doesn't tend to, at least in the in the books of his that I've read, he doesn't tend to do stuff like that. He doesn't really bring religion into it all that much at all. In fact, in The Great Gatsby, I remember it was striking to, to my students and, and to me how little humanity and religion and caring for your fellow human there is in the book and it's it's part of kind of the the coldness of the people is masked by the richness of the language and it isn't until you're out of it that you kind of go wow that isn't a world i want to be in at all and uh, and this is not all that different i mean it's funnier but it's not all that different so anyway i will let you chew on this story and tweet and post about it i have found it to be quite entertaining and again huge thanks to shayla norton this was this was her idea and she did the recording and uh and i am so grateful for it I, uh, I wouldn't have done it otherwise, and it's been a, a fun interlude for me in the midst of all of the Gulliverness, and, uh, and I hope it's been fun for you as well. On that note, have a great couple of weeks until I come back with Gulliver. I hope you are well. I hope you stay well. I hope you enjoy the spring. For those of you in the land down under, I hope you enjoy your approaching winter. <laughs> and and uh, no more tornadoes or earthquakes or anything like that okay guys just uh, let's keep a lid on it for a little while longer take care i'll talk to you soon bye there are many ways to listen to craftlet you can listen on your smartphone via the stitcher radio app you can subscribe free through itunes or you can download and listen to the iphone itouch and android app where you'll receive occasional extras for the show Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, volume two, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlet.com. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate, and all of them help keep Craftlet and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.